Join me in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. What we like to do is just look at a portion of uh, the life and ministry of Christ for a few minutes together, and we'll, uh, as typical with the communion time, just cut our study a little bit shorter uh, than normal, and then we're just going to enter back into a time of worship and uh, putting our attention upon the Lord as we partake of communion together. Luke, chapter 6, and I want to look at... uh, the story here beginning in verse 6. Luke 6, verse 6 says, Now it happened on another Sabbath also uh, that he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But He knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. And then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. And Father, we thank you for your word that you've left for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for breathing into the men that you used as vessels and and conduits to record the will of God in, in a written form that we can hold in our hands and read and sow into our hearts and minds and soul and spirit to be able to have revelation about the God that we know and love. And, and, and Lord, we just ask that you'd be gracious to us tonight in a special way that as we pause to celebrate communion as you told us to do such, you said to do it, Jesus, to do this in remembrance of you. And we want to do that tonight, but we just want to enter into that with just a right heart attitude. We ask that you'd examine us through your word, and we ask that through your word you would put our attention upon Jesus and help us to reflect upon him, who he was and what he was like, that our minds would be thinking about the very Son of God even as we celebrate the elements of communion and continue to worship you for who you are and all that you've done. So, Lord, you know what it means for each one of us in this room tonight. We ask that by your Spirit you'd prepare us mentally, physically, spiritually, and that you'd help us to be receptive. And, Lord, help us to hear your voice and what you would want to say to us through this portion of Scripture to our hearts and lives personally. Bless your word, Lord, and speak to us now by your Spirit's ministry. And we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Well, here in Luke chapter 6, we have another one of the many miracles that Jesus did recorded for us. And, of course, Luke's gospel is always unique in some ways when he records a miracle for us because we remember that Luke, uh, by vocation, was a physician. So it had to be all the more interesting for Luke to not only be used by the Holy Spirit to record the teachings of Christ and what he said and what he did, but especially when Jesus would perform one of his miracles. Uh, Because as a doctor, no doubt, uh, it would probably astound his mind all the more medically how at times something absolutely miraculous would take place in somebody's life uh, that as a physician you understood there is no way medically that that could happen 
that that had to be an act of God or that had to be something that God by his divine power performed in a person's life. And, and here Luke gives to us a record of one of the many miracles we have recorded of Christ. Matthew records it in his gospel as well. Uh, Mark records the same miracle in chapter 3, and we get little additional insights. But here we find Luke's account of Jesus, another occasion when it is a Sabbath day. And because of that, we've seen, as we're familiar with the Gospels, this is often what caused friction between Jesus and the religious leaders because they had such a regulated mindset and uh, had taken what God intended to be something that was created for man for man's rest and refreshment and a time where he could just have fellowship uh, with his family and with his God and just to be renewed and restored physically and, and just refreshed spiritually. And remember, they had taken it and had, uh, in a sense, taken the word of God and added all these additional ideas and concepts and traditions to it and had taken it in a very legalistic way through the regulations, things to a place where God never intended them to be. And because of that, when Jesus came on the scene, uh, wanting to honor the heart of God and the heart of the law, and remember, Jesus never sinned. The Bible teaches us that. So it means Jesus never broke God's law. Uh, he was never breaking the law of God. But what Jesus often did, and sometimes almost uh, intentionally, was he would violate the traditions of the religious leaders to try and help them understand that God wants us to live according to the word of God and not according to the ways of men in what their perception of God is or what the perception of being religious or righteous may be. And so a lot of times Jesus would break that mold in the same way that Jesus, a lot of times I think throughout our walk with the Lord kind of just works in my life sometimes in your ways, uh, life sometimes in ways where he periodically will kind of just come around and break some of the molds and some of the ideas that we develop of what it truly means to, to be spiritual or to live for God, if it's not according to the word of God, sometimes the Lord will, will kind of press against that a little bit and cause us to, to reevaluate what we're trying to create as a standard of righteousness or a perception of what it means to be spiritual or to be unspiritual. And this was a, a re re recurring issue with the Sabbath day as Jesus in the prior verse to what we just read uh, had dealt with an issue on a prior Sabbath day and actually in verse 5 came to the point where he said the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the Jews understood that God had given them the Sabbath. Uh, Exodus chapter 20 is the first place we see that. We, we saw that in our study recently on Wednesday nights as we're going through Exodus. So for Jesus to say in a declaration, the Son of Man, referring to himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath, that was a proclamation of deity. It was another occasion where Jesus was saying, listen, uh, what I say about the Sabbath is right or wrong uh, is what is correct because I'm the one who gave the Sabbath. I am God in flesh. Uh, but uh, this was a constant sense of friction between them as they had this perception of what was work and not work and wanted to maintain their regulations. So here we find another Sabbath again where we read there's tension again with Jesus and the religious leaders uh, and Jesus works in just this really beautiful, gracious way to minister to a man and to minister to a life and is more concerned about doing good and salvaging uh, the hurts uh, and what needed to be restored in the life of a person rather than trying to uh, keep the continuity of their religious ideas and infrastructure and all those kind of things. And it tells us in verse 6 there in our account that it was on another Sabbath also, another Sabbath, that Jesus entered the synagogue 
and he taught. So as was his custom, the Bible says, Jesus, when it was a religious gathering among the Jews, that's where the synagogue was. It was the place they assembled together. The law of God was read. Prayers were offered. The people would congregate together to worship God uh, in the way in which they did under the Old Testament covenant. Uh, and when God's people assembled together, lo and behold, Jesus actually went to church. Uh, now, I find that interesting that Jesus found it important. And keep in mind, by this point in time, uh, historically, among the nation of Israel and the religious leaders in the nation of Israel, uh, things were not exactly perfectly in line with what the heart and will of God was for the religious structure and the worship system among Israel. But rather than Jesus step away from that or be critical of that or say, you know what, um, I think I'm pretty spiritual. I don't need to participate in that. I mean, he was God in the flesh. Uh, and I find it always a constant reminder for myself. If Jesus sensed the need when God's people assembled to assemble, and that was his habit and custom, well, I, I want to observe the same thing. And, and, and so Jesus still went. He, he assembles together. And as was his custom as well, he enters and he begins to teach. So here we have, a again, if you envision in your mind a gathering like this, when God's people are together for a time of worship, Jesus is bringing forth instruction from the word of God. He's teaching the people and the Holy Spirit indicates to us that there was a man among them, verse 6, who it says his right hand, and Luke takes note of that. The other gospel accounts uh, don't give that indication, but the, the indication of the right hand is because that was the dominant hand. The right hand in scripture was an indication of, of someone's strength. It was their capability. So the Holy Spirit, again, is just in, indicating to us the importance of, of what was now dysfunctional, something that was important, it was essential to, to labor, whether in agriculture or to labor in some trade or capacity to provide for oneself, to be able to do the natural functions of everyday life. It was the right hand of this man, it says here, that was withered. So here you find this man, the Holy Spirit points out that God zeroes in now in our, in our, little, our, our little vignette here of this story on a man who has tremendous need in his life. Uh, something that should be healthy and functioning in his life, it says, has been damaged, it's been withered. And in fact, when you, when you look at the term that's used there for a withered hand, the language indicates that his hand had not always been like this. So this apparently was not something that had been the case from this man's birth. He wasn't born with this handicap or deformity, as some people are. This particular man, his condition was something that was not like this at one time, but he apparently had suffered something that caused then his hand to go from being normal and healthy and functional to becoming withered and, and dysfunctional in some form of a disability. Perhaps his hand was smashed in an industrial accident, maybe crushed or burnt in some working capacity. Uh, maybe he had a stroke or seizure, as could be the case. And because of that, he had lost the capability for his hand to function as it once used to in a healthy and proper way. Maybe some disease uh, possibly could have caused uh, the muscles to have uh, hardened and a sclerosis in some sense whereby he doesn't have the normal proper functioning. And again, uh, Dr. Luke using this term, it could be an indication of that, that something happened over time where in the language seems to indicate almost a hardening of the muscles whereby it's almost as if you can envision, you know, visually kind of a hand that's probably, you know, kind of clawed in and unable to function properly. 
but it indicates something that was one healthy and working in his life was now paralyzed or, or damaged and it lost its intended purpose and function by natural healthy design. And in some ways, this man, I think, becomes a vivid picture of people's lives today because the Bible is very clear to us that sin does not only just offend a holy God, sin also harms human beings. And sin always has a damaging and detrimental effect upon us. And whether it is sin that we ourselves commit that causes a detrimental experience in our own lives, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, or whether it's sin that's committed against us by someone else that's done something to us that's caused a damaging in our lives, uh, you know, as we look at this, perhaps you can in some way relate to this. Maybe there is, honestly, if you were to be genuine, maybe there is in your life. Maybe not something outwardly obvious to everyone, where it's, it's totally, but maybe there's, in a sense, a withered area in your life personally that, in a sense, is not functioning the way God once intended it to. And maybe it's because something unfortunate in relation to the sin of humanity has had an effect upon your life maybe very simply it's just the fact that you at some point uh, entered in or indulged into some type of sinful behavior or activity maybe it was before you came to Christ maybe it's since you've come to Jesus Christ maybe you backslid and entered into something but maybe in some way as the result of some sin that you participated in that was not God's will or design for our lives according to his plans and purposes Maybe as a result, you are experiencing the repercussions now of that sin in your life. And again, you can play that out through any and many different types of sin that we can indulge in as human beings. But, but sin has consequences. Is it forgivable? Yes, but sin does have consequences. Uh, it leaves us with wounds and battle scars, again, whether emotionally or, or psychologically or sometimes physically. You know, we, we, there are results of sin that cause physical problems in our lives later on, uh, emotional scars within, things that happen relationally that really wound our spirit or cause us to struggle with things mentally, things that we shouldn't think about or, or just uh, struggles in various capacities internally in our lives. Uh, maybe it's not that, may, or maybe in conjunction with that, maybe it's some of the sin that people have committed against you. Because our sins affect one another, we know that. And the things that we do that are sinful and wrong always have an effect upon those around us. No one sins alone to himself. We sin against God. But we sin in a way whereby our sin always has a ripple effect and it is most intense in collateral damage of those who are closest to us, but it always has a rippling effect when you watch it that it ultimately hurts and harms other people around us. And I am absolutely certain in this room there's not one of us who have not been the candidate of collateral damage of the sinful choices and behaviors of other people in our lives that have hurt and damaged and wounded some area of our life. Again, whether it was something that our parents did, whether it was something gross and, and horribly inappropriate that maybe an intimate family member did to us. Maybe it was some betrayal in a marriage relationship or a romantic relationship. Maybe something hurtful that was done to us in, in a vocational situation or, or whatever. The, the sin of humanity is what is damaging and destroying all of humanity. 
And many times this can cause a, a hurtful, damaged area in our lives or something horribly goes wrong in life. Again, just we live in a fallen world that is plagued with, as a result of that, from the curse, sickness and sin and diseased conditions in all of humanity. We, this world lives under the curse and sometimes we experience the repercussions of that and sometimes horrible tragedies that we don't even have the explanation to. Why did this happen? Why this horrible tragedy? Why this crisis? And, and we don't even have the answers to that sometimes, but ultimately you can trace it all back so much of it to the Garden of Eden that the existence of sin in humanity in this fallen world causes the pain and the difficulties that we then function with and maybe something that you have experienced as a result of your personal choices the choices of others or just some unexpected tragedy has left you in your life let's put it this way a little bit paralyzed in a certain area of your life maybe it's not something that's big and obvious but there's something within you that you realize there's this area of your life that it's sort of withered Something that once had life to it is kind of, it's kind of died within you. And, and again, maybe it's something within you emotionally where even the, you know, the capacity to be able to have a healthy relationship with someone and to love and to trust and to, to just be relaxed and fully let go without always keeping a measure of boundaries up because you're trying to live in a method of self-preservation because someone else once wounded you and God forbid you'll never let anyone have that chance to do that to you again. So you live life with a sense of, of always one measure of reservation because you need to keep a bit of a self-defense mechanism up because if you completely let your guard down and be open to completely free, healthy, intimate relationship with another person or other people, you're afraid. And because of that, that part of you, it's sort of withered and it's retracted. And what God intended to be a normal, healthy, wonderful relationship that's kind of withered in you. And you don't even know how to have a relationship with people. Or, or, or because of the sin that you committed, the relationship that you were supposed to have with God, something in you is withered spiritually. The life that you once had spiritually, the vibrancy, the, the, you know, the love for the Lord and the life that you experienced between you and God, because of the, the sins and things you've done and the condemnation or the guilt and the shame and the things you've done, now something within you spiritually is withered whereby you, you're, you're not completely submitting and surrendering and just being free to just let God do what God wants to do in your life. So there's a part of you that always holds something back even from God. From trusting the Lord fully or, or just being, being completely open to, to Lord, I'm open to whatever you want in the realm of the Spirit. I'm open to it. But there's something within us, again, whether spiritually or relationally, physically, emotionally. It's amazing how in our lives there are parts of our lives on occasion that can almost become paralyzed and crippled. And we know in some way, we know within ourselves that this is something in my life it's it's not operating the way it's supposed this is not god's design this area of my life it's damaged it's wounded there's something within me that's sort of just withered and retracted and you're keenly aware of that dysfunction that limitation call it what you will in your life well listen i just want to say whatever that is and the holy spirit knows what that is in each of our lives this passage should give incredible encouragement that there is hope for restoration in Jesus. Because this man who's there with this withered hand 
this limitation and dysfunction in his life, that was his story, his personal life, at the end of the story, Jesus works in his life in a way, and it says at the end of verse 10 there, that his hand was restored as whole as the other. In other words, the Lord restored what that limitation was. The Lord restored back the life, the function, the health, the original intention of what the heart of a loving God always intended for him to be able to experience in his life because God is a gracious God and a, a healing God and he can restore. Joel says he restores the years that the locusts have eaten away. And it's what a great hope to see this because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, as we look at this man, of course, we see other people in this same story. It's the religious leaders who were always bothered by Jesus. It says, verse 7, the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. This was often what they were doing. We read this throughout the gospel accounts. I, I want to say a few things in relation to this. Note with me regarding the religious, religious leaders, by way of cautioning ourselves. First of all, note it says in verse 7 here that they were looking for Jesus to work in a way whereby it says they could then find an accusation against Jesus. Now, as I look at this, there's something to me that's very twisted about that mentality. In a sense, here they are. This is God. This is Jesus. And they are, it says, looking for the Lord to work in a way where they can find a reason to accuse Jesus of wrong, to accuse Jesus and God of doing what's wrong. Doesn't that seem a little backwards? They're trying to put Jesus on trial. Shouldn't we be the ones on trial before a holy God and a righteous judge? Where in the world, in the audacity of the arrogance of our humanity... Would we ever think that somehow we have the right to step back and to watch how the Lord would choose to work in any way on this planet or in our lives personally or in any situation and think that we have a right to accuse him? That, that we're putting the Lord on trial. Wait a minute here. What are we thinking? We're the ones that should be on trial. The Lord should be accusing us of our errors and our wrongdoings. He's the righteous one. He's the judge. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And something is very distorted when our heart has come to a place where we're looking to critique the Lord and how he works and what he does and what he doesn't do. Or, or we come to a gathering like they were in. This was a worship gathering and, and we're there with a heart and an attitude of looking to critique things rather than to be open to what the Lord wants to do in the midst. And, and people can come into an assembly meeting of worship with, in essence, just a, a heart and an attitude just looking to critique. Why they sing like that? Or why do they sing that song? Or why don't they sing like that? Or why do they teach like that? Or why, how come they do this? Or how come they don't? And, and, and how come these people are, are, are doing this? And, and people can come in to a meeting and instead of looking to the Lord and being open to what the Lord wants to do, they're looking to just critique uh, even in a meeting what's happening in the midst of the presence of the Lord. And something's really out of tune when that can begin to happen in a human heart. Now, though they are in a very wrong place in their hearts, it is interesting, and we can take note with me as well, that notice the religious leaders, one thing was interesting is they knew that Jesus had the power to heal. 
because it says that they were looking to see if he was going to heal that man on the Sabbath. So that tells me something. The religious leaders believed that Jesus had the power to heal. Now, in a sense, they were his enemies. They weren't there to worship him. They weren't his followers. The religious leaders were always resisting him. They were like the enemies of the Lord. And, and if the enemies of the Lord believe that he had the power to heal, what should be the faith of the follower of the Lord? What should be our faith as worshipers of Jesus and followers of Jesus if, if they're believing he has the power to heal and there's a sense of expectancy in their hearts? I wonder if he's going to heal somebody in this service. I bet you he's going to try and minister to somebody that has a personal need in their life. They believed he had the power to heal. Lord, give us greater faith. And they also knew that Jesus would notice in a crowd of people, one person who had a need in their life. They sensed that. They, they saw this man there with a withered hand and they, they, they believed. Now, whether this was a setup and they put this man to try and catch Jesus, we don't know, or whether or not he just was there and because he attended regularly amidst that local assembly in the synagogue, they knew that Jesus, they knew his heart and his temper, that he would notice one person amidst a crowd of people that had a genuine deep need in their life. And you know what? Jesus has not changed. The Bible says the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and whether it's a crowd of people that's 20 or 30 people or a crowd of people that's 200 or 300 people or 2,000 or 3,000 people, Jesus is aware of the personal need in your life. And he cares about what's personally happening in your life, whatever that need is. He's not overlooking it. He's not kind of taking just a mass perspective. No, he cares about the individual. He's a God of the individual. Some of Jesus' greatest statements, read the Gospel of John. Some of Jesus' greatest statements that we love, that we learn so much from, are what? The result of conversations and interactions with individuals. John chapter 3, Jesus deals with one confused religious man. We get the whole teaching on being born again, and for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John chapter 4, where Jesus has another encounter, what, with a woman at the well. One woman who was immoral and confused, but genuinely thirsty, and everyone else despised, but Jesus was burdened for her soul, and so he went and sought her. John chapter 5, Jesus goes to the man who's paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda, and there's a group of people but he says, he, he calls out one man. He says, do you want to be made well? And he gives one man an opportunity as an individual to respond to the call of Jesus upon his life and faith. He'd been in that condition for 38 years. And, and, and we see how much wonderful ministry of Jesus came out of interaction with individuals because he cares about individuals and they knew that Jesus was compassionate and that he was drawn in that room to the person with the deepest need. Was he teaching a Bible study? Yeah, but he also was concerned about there's, there are people in this room with needs. And listen, when we come together to worship the Lord and, and to be in the midst of a meeting with him like this, does Jesus want to speak into our lives? Yes. Absolutely. Jesus wants to teach. I believe every time we're together, he put an emphasis on teaching. I believe we want to hear the heart of Jesus. We want to hear his word. He wants to speak to you and you should be having an open ear to want to hear what he wants to say. But listen, Jesus wants to do way more when we come together for a, 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 a corporate gathering of worship than just say something to you and send you away. 
Sometimes Jesus also wants to show something to you or, or he wants to do something in you or in me. And sometimes Jesus wants to minister to some need in our life and to touch us, to heal us, to help us, to, to restore in some way. And it's not just, hey, come into that service, get your marching orders, get a few more instructions, commands, and get out there and follow orders, soldiers. And if you're bleeding and wounded, whatever, you know, just... Stiff upper lip and get back out there into the world. Well, that's not the heart of the Lord. Jesus in this meeting, they sensed there was a man with need and they sensed, I bet you he's going to try and minister to that person. And they, again, his enemies were sensing this. And I point this out this evening to realize in a meeting of worship, Jesus is interested in ministering to those who are present. Tonight, listen, Jesus is interested in ministering to you. Whatever your need is. He, he's aware of what your need is and he's interested in ministering to you in your life in a personal way, whatever your need may be. Verse 8, it says that though they were thinking this in their minds, it says Jesus knew their thoughts. Now, that's a searching statement and we should never overlook that. Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew everything about their lives intimately and personally and fully and it was all exposed before the presence of Jesus. And tonight, you know, let the Spirit of God remind us as we examine ourselves to take of communion in a way that's, you know, in a sense, a worthy manner before the Lord. It's a time when we should search our own hearts. Be aware tonight. Jesus doesn't just know what you're doing. He hasn't just been paying attention to what you said, maybe unkind to someone before you came here. Jesus knows what you're thinking. He knows you deeply. Listen, the Bible says everything is laid naked and bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account, Hebrews 4 tells us. Jesus knows your life fully. And Jesus holds you accountable, not just for what you do outwardly, but also what you're thinking inwardly and what the attitude of your heart is. That's why Jesus said, look, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've even looked at a woman with lust in your heart, with a lustful thought, you're just as guilty as the one that everybody is mocking and despising and so angry at because they wrecked the home, because they committed adultery. Jesus says, listen, that person may be dealing with a little more repercussions because they went through with it, but before the eyes of God, you're just as guilty. You're just as exposed. And so important that we recognize the gravity of our own sinfulness and depravity that Jesus knows our thoughts. He saw their hearts. The other accounts tell us that he actually was grieved, it says, and angry at the hardness of their hearts. So tonight, listen, Jesus can, can in a sense be offended and deeply grieved just when you have a hard heart in a meeting. That we can come to a worship meeting and, and other hearts are sensitive and open and, and responsive and, and sometimes we can come to a meeting of God's people and our heart is just hard and we're just desensitized. We're kind of just indifferent. Oh, how much longer is this almost over? Oh, I just, you know, and, and just to have a hard heart to the things of God that aren't sensitive and open, that can grieve the Lord. We can grieve his spirit, the Bible says. We can cause grief to the heart of the Lord and offense because we don't deem him worthy of our attention or our infections. And, and here he knew their thoughts and he said then to the man who had the withered hand, verse 8, arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. So Jesus compassionately, look what he does here. He, not to humiliate this man, but he calls him out to step out of the shadows because like most of us, 
he probably was ashamed because of his condition. In that day, many times people would say that there were wrong reasons, you know, that for people being in certain conditions and would heap just unkind, you know, insults and perceptions on people. And he probably kind of just hung back. He was probably a little embarrassed of his condition. And Jesus calls him now to step out into the open and in a sense to not hide from his situation. And much like us, when typically those areas of our life that, again, maybe are are withered and they're not what they're supposed to be, they're dysfunctional and, and there's those limitations, a lot of times, let's be very candid, we tend to want to just kind of hide those things. And as much as we can hide them and not let anybody else know they're going on, and let me go one step further, we almost try and hide them from the Lord. We almost try to ignore like they don't really exist. That, 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 my, you know, that my spirit is so wounded from something that happened that I'm just withered and dying on the inside spiritually, but I know how to do all the Christian mechanics to give the perception that I am just so in love with the Lord still and reading His Word and praying when the reality is we are dry as the desert sand spiritually and totally have withered up and dried in our relationship with God, but yet... It's amazing, the persona, and, and we almost try and hide that from ourselves and from the Lord. And sometimes Jesus says, no, we, we need to bring that to the forefront. Not because I want to embarrass you, but because I want to help you. He didn't want to shame this man. He wanted to help this man. So he calls him to bring it forth. In, he tells this man, arise and stand. And he obediently stands out of honor for the Lord, and Jesus, verse 9, then confronts again the religious leaders, say, I will ask you one thing, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy? So Jesus asks a searching question to reveal the hearts of everybody in the room, but most importantly, to, to prove what is true and what is error to the religious leaders. Again, their mindset was you could only do something to save someone's life on the Sabbath, but anything else was deemed work. So if somebody has got a you know, a, a bleeding, hemorrhaging wound. You could just stop it from bleeding, but you know, whatever you had to do to just keep them alive, life-saving measures were okay, but anything else. They had all these fanatical ideas because they didn't understand the heart of God. And, and, and their perception towards God was distorted. As, as quite honestly, many times our perceptions of God can be very confused and wrong. We forget his goodness and his kindness and what his nature is really like. And, and Jesus here is wanting them to see that God is not interested in rule keeping and regulating lies with rituals and requirements. But Jesus is reminding them here with these searching questions that God is interested in doing good. He says, look, does God want to do evil or does he want to do good? God wants to do good and he doesn't want to destroy people's lives. Sin destroys people's lives. Jesus didn't come to destroy people's lives. He came to save people's lives. And, and, and Jesus is wanting us and them to sense here that, that God is a God that wants to do good for people and to save lives. And then he proves it in verse 10. When he looked around at them all, he then says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now, as the sort of the... The whole climactic moment of the story comes together here. Notice in verse 10 that Jesus asked this man, we could say it this way, to reach out in a way that required faith from his life to receive what Jesus wanted to do in his life. His hands withered. I'm sure there were people in the, in the crowd in the meeting almost could have potentially almost critically again, especially those who were there just to critique the meeting, that is so cruel. To do that to a handicapped person in front of everybody? To tell him to show his handicap? 
to draw attention to him? Hey, stand up and show everybody your handicap. Stretch out your hand. And how could he say that's so unkind? Why, that's, where's the, I'm sure this man himself might have even in his human logical thoughts, so what? Stretch out my hand. It's bad enough I got to live with thing, this thing. You want me to expose it? You're asking me. That's impossible. I've never been able to stretch. It has been like this forever. It's damaged. It's withered. It's destroyed. It, it's, it's not coming back. It's been like this for a long time. It's completely damaged. It's permanently ruined. It is what it is. Why would you ask me to do it? That's impossible. But with men, things are impossible. But the Bible says, Jesus declared that with God, all things are possible. And so what does Jesus do? He, in essence, asks this man to reach out to him in a way that required faith. It would take a complete act of faith, setting aside his logic, setting aside all the excuses, the past hurts, the reasons why it would never, and to just embrace the divine opportunity and say, Lord, if you're telling me to stretch out my hand, I'll stretch out my hand. And by simply initiating in faith and reaching out to Jesus in faith, a miracle takes place in his life and the loving, gracious power of the Lord Jesus Christ in this opportunity causes a miraculous restoration in this man's life. You know, as I look at this story, certainly it's a literal, personal, historical account of the healing power of Jesus, but it also, like many of the stories in the scripture, reminds me even of what takes place in salvation. You know, sin is what damages and withers all of our lives. It affects us in different ways, but because we are sinful and we fall short of the glory of God, sin ruins our lives. And because of the sinfulness in our condition, as human beings, we're, we're all warped and withered and, and we don't, in a sense, function the way God intended us to function. Mentally, we don't think right. And emotionally, we don't know how to function right. We don't know how to have relationships right. And, and, and in many ways, you know, spiritually, we're completely off the charts because sin withers and damages everything God originally created and intended for us to be in the Garden of Eden. And sin causes that damaging effect. But Jesus wants to cause us to see that reality. He wants us to stop trying to hide what sin has destroyed in our lives and to come to realize, look, yeah, I'm fractured. <laughs> I got limitations and issues and problems and there's one root cause. It's sin. It's because I live in a sinful world and I've been hurt and affected by sinful people and first and foremost, I'm one of those sinful people and my own sin has done this to me and I'm like this because of my own sinfulness. But once he gets us to understand that and not hide from it but openly admit it, then Jesus desires for us, just like this man, to just reach out in faith. And when we reach out in faith, this guy had nothing to offer, but when he reached out in faith, the healing, miraculous, saving power of Jesus Christ restored what had been destroyed in his life. And the same happens when someone embraces Christ.